He was the brain behind the brawn, the man behind the matches, the promoter that changed boxing and wrestling forever. Today we talk about Charles Parson Davies. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed the button. Or you pressed a button. It seems like the right button because you're hearing me talk. It's the right button for me anyway because I like the downloads. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. And more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. I am here to talk about the deep, rich history of professional wrestling, which is no surprise if you've been listening to this show. And if it's your first time, welcome. I'm glad you're here and I hope you have a heck of a time because we have a very fun one for you today. Oh my goodness, am I excited about this. But before we get to what this even is, I just want to say thank you to the people who have sent a couple of donations uh, since the last episode came out. Thank you to Lydia and to Mike. Uh, your donations definitely keep this uh, the Hippodrome Express chugging along. Make sure that we keep the lights on. Make sure we keep these uh, the server happy with... Uh, yeah, it turns out they want money for uh, us to, the, to have these up on the internet. Weird, shocking, I know. But here we are, and I want to say thank you so much for helping us out with that. And this is going to be a subject which affects me. It's one that's very close to my heart, because we've been talking about wrestlers, grapplers, fighters, wrestling video games, and boxers. But until now, I have not discussed the true stars of the wrestling world, the underappreciated and unsung heroes. May I even say the gods among us? And yes, I am, of course, talking about the wrestling promoter. And I'm not just saying this as a wrestling promoter myself. Well, maybe just a little. I am a promoter, and I would say I'm a rather good one at that. But in the late 1800s, the promoting game was a much different animal. In the past, I've talked about how lucky I am, about how I have so much more access to the past. I have access to newspaper archives. I have access to source materials that wrestling historians did not have 10 years ago. Similarly, I live in a time where I am very privileged as a wrestling booker and promoter. I live in a time where I can DM somebody on social media. I can send them an email. If I know them well enough, I can shoot them a text message. But once upon a time, it was a little more difficult. Once upon a time, you had to send a telegraph or you had to get on a train and go to a city and convince somebody to take part in a match. You had to trust people in cities you didn't live in to contact the papers and to do the legwork to ensure that when you showed up, you didn't have an empty building and thousands of dollars owed to people out of your own pocket. So yes, I am very lucky, but I am fascinated by these old-time promoters, these old-time managers. It is absolutely wild from my perspective, so I wanted to cover this uh, this branch of the business, if you will. In the late 1800s, the promoting game was a much different animal than it is today, and it was a much different animal than it was even in the 1920s, as we covered in our long-form series a few months ago. It wasn't a promotion territory system or a TV-at-the-top pyramid system. It was very much akin to the modern boxing world, where the wrestler and his manager held all the power, and it was the manager who would handle the business of accepting or finding opponents, making the deals with the venues. It was the same wrestler-manager deal we explored with Billy Sandow and Ed Lewis, where one did the in-ring work or worked someone in the ring, and another was in charge of the business side of things and talking it up. And for many years, nobody did it better than Charles E. Parson Davies. If that name sounds familiar, it's most likely because you listened to our episodes about Evan Strangler Lewis from a few years ago. Why am I revisiting this era and doing this story in particular? Well, I'm revisiting the Pioneer era because I am not the happiest with the old episodes about them. My research was closer to a book report than true research of my own, so I wanted to go back and retell some stories from a different perspective. I was also fascinated by what an upright and well-liked person he seemed to be. 
in contrast to Evan the Strangler Lois, who seemed to be hated by nearly everyone. I was also blown away by the sheer scope of his career as a promoter of every conceivable sport a man could put together for the sake of selling tickets and making bets. His work in boxing is legendary, especially when representing black boxers at a time where the color line was big enough to see from space. So we will talk boxing a little more than usual, as well as the wrestlers he managed and the matches he promoted. One source for this story that I have to put over is the book Chicago's Greatest Sportsman, Charles E. Parson Davies by Mark T. Dunn. He wrote a brilliant, and at almost 700 pages, quite hefty biography of Davies. Since we're really only covering the wrestling side in great detail, if you like what you hear, give it a read. I'm just glad I was able to find a copy. When I first looked for it soon after reading a biography of Evan Lewis, it wasn't available. This is a problem I'm getting used to. Wrestling biographies have always been a niche market, so even the best can easily go out of print. There are a few Frank Gotch bios that are hard to track down, and a Muldoon biography his friend wrote towards the end of the solid man's life. Copies are rare and can fetch hundreds of dollars, and I hate to admit that I'll probably still get them at some point. But enough about me and my book addiction. Before we can really talk about Davies, we need to take a quick look at the world he grew up in. And as Mark Dunn pointed out, take a look at his older brother who gave Charles a very big shadow to escape. And yes, this episode is definitely putting the history nerd in pro wrestling history nerds. Charles Davies was born in Antrim, Ireland on July 7th, 1851. His mother passed away when he was seven, and in 1863, his father took Charlie to Chicago when he was 12, following other family members, including Charles's older brother, Henry, who had emigrated to the United States in 1858. The U.S. was not a kind place to the flood of Irish immigration at that time, but it was a hell of a lot better than Ireland. After the brutal potato famine and the English reaction to it, millions of Irish flooded into the U.S. to start a new life, and that wave of immigrants became the anchor communities for the immigration wave of the coming decades as the English fought to suppress Irish nationalism and cries for independence. This is a deep and rich story that is a foundation of European and American history in the 20th century, but this is not the story we're here to tell. In Chicago, Paul Davies, Charles's father, found work as a clerk with the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Who were the Pinkertons? Founded by Alan Pinkerton, they were a detective and private security agency who, after solving a series of high-profile train robberies, found themselves into the good graces of Abraham Lincoln, partially due to Pinkerton's abolitionist views. If that makes you think Pinkerton is a swell guy, think again! While Pinkerton was very egalitarian in his hiring, understanding that women and black spies could go places and get info that a white man couldn't, he was primarily a violent defender of robber barons and oligarchs' rights to shape U.S. policy and control labor in the U.S. In 1871, the Pinkertons were given a huge government budget from the newly created Federal Department of Justice, which had yet to form an actual branch of enforcement. They became subcontracted federal investigators. However, the branch was becoming more and more known for acting as the private army of industrialists and violently attacking labor organizers and breaking strikes. Pinkerton himself may have believed that chattel slavery was wrong, but he clearly believed that labor was the property of capital and was willing to turn his men into a mercenary army to enforce this. It got so bad that in 1893, Congress passed the Anti-Pinkerton Act, limiting the government's ability to hire mercenaries and unregulated law enforcement contractors. And how did Paul Davies get his position? Most likely through his son, Charles's older brother Henry, who had been a Pinkerton for years. Henry was born in 1843 and came to the U.S. in 1858. He sold stationery, worked as a baker, and ended up a spy for the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Henry played a role in foiling the Baltimore plot, which was a conspiracy to assassinate newly elected President Abraham Lincoln, 
who was seen as an existential threat to the slave-holding tradition of the South. Henry was reportedly the spy that delivered the details of the plot to Pinkerton, who in turn put together a plan to escort Lincoln in disguise through Baltimore on the way to Washington, D.C. Maryland was on the verge of joining the Confederacy, which was probably the excuse needed for Lincoln to have a large number of the state government arrested before they could break away. There are rumors that the plot was an invention of Pinkerton's in order to get in the good graces of the president for future business. Most likely that wasn't the case, but it sure would be pro-wrestling if it was. During the Civil War, Henry enlisted and was part of the 69th New York State Militia and was wounded at Bull Run. He re-enlisted as a sergeant in May 1862 and remained until September of the same year. He turned down an offer to serve with the Irish Brigade and returned to baking, and in 1864, back to the Pinkertons. He had an exciting career of capturing train robbers and shootouts with the Reno gang, and he was a very big figure in Charles's life. Not that Charles sought to also get into law enforcement or violently protect the American oligarchy, but saw his brother as proof that hard work can bring a man from nothing to the heights of success and renown. Paul Davies died on Christmas Day, 1867, in Chicago. As a well-liked member of the Pinkertons, the funeral was held at their offices, and he was buried in the Pinkerton section of Graceland Cemetery. So now we come to Charles. Charles was orphaned, but with a large network of siblings, including Henry, another older brother named George, who also worked for the Pinkertons, a younger brother, a sister in Chicago, a sister in New York, and another back in Ireland. That said, he was still functionally on his own at the age of 15 and made his home in the Bowery neighborhood of New York City, which was not exactly a great place to live. Why is that? This was only a few years removed from the Gangs of New York era, as somewhat recorded in the Martin Scorsese movie of the same name. If you've seen the movie, it's important to realize that not only did Scorsese massively whitewash the history, since Five Points had a huge African-American population, it also made it look like a paradise compared to what it was. The Irish were seen as an invasive Catholic species for decades and were forced to live in cramped neighborhoods with dozens of people stuffed into buildings without running water or basic sanitation. Violence, unemployment, crime of all kinds, alcoholism, and disease were rampant. One establishment boasted that at least one person was killed there every single night. The post-Civil War landscape was slightly different and possibly slightly better. After the draft riots, the city sought to demolish many of the tenements and crack down on street crime. And the Irish were more politically integrated after the Tammany Hall schemes to sway Irish voters into a power block. The Irish were also seen as more American after so many served, though often against their will, in the Union Army. New York also saw a post-war flood of discharged soldiers emptied into the street with no job prospects, a little money in their pockets, missing limbs, massive PTSD, or both. The economy of the nation dipped, having spent years chugging along powered by the military complex, so we had an influx of troubled, unemployed men, and a small army of swindlers coming out of the woodwork seeking to deprive them of their back pay, bounty pay, and their monthly stipend. They were swindled and robbed at every turn. One report I saw claimed that a common scam was offering a hero soldier a free cigar that was laced with opium, and then once they were passed out, they would get their pockets emptied. Among all this was young Charles Davies, making his way as a teenager who found work as a waiter at the Putnam House Hotel, where he made a very good impression on William Muldoon, who would frequent the place regularly in part because of Davies delivering a much smaller check than expected. Muldoon biographer Van Every claimed, quote, He and his friends had the good fortune to fall into the graces of an obliging waiter who saw that they were not only accorded good service, but that their checks were surprisingly reasonable. Thus, he cleaned up on tips, which most likely led to his regular attendance at the boxing matches at 600 Broadway to watch the stars of the day beat the shit out of each other. When Davies was 17, Tammany Hall boss and future corrupt mayor Richard Croker took a shine to him and offered him a job as a policeman, 
which was a cornerstone of the Irish integration and power policy in the city. Clearly seeing a different path for his future, Charles declined the offer. A few years later, the 20-year-old relocated to Chicago. How was his older brother doing? Rather well, in the terrible, unethical sort of way. In 1869, Henry Davies became the superintendent of the Pinkerton New York office, and his primary job was spying on Cuban independence activists on behalf of the Spanish government and American citizens who provided them with aid. Again, the Pinkertons were not good people. In the wake of the Chicago fire, there was a gold mine to be made in its rebuilding. Millions of dollars were invested in the rebuilding of the city with an eye on the future. The city was being modernized and created with an actual city plan in mind for the decades to come. The street-smart young Charles knew an opportunity and made his way to the Windy City. His brother George ran a saloon and was able to offer him a job. In 1876, Charles Davies was a founding member of the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks, Lodge No. 4. The Elks Lodge would become a very important part for the rest of his life. Mark Dunn made a good point in his biography of Davies. The post-Civil War morale, economic, and emotional collapse affected everyone. People had to now take stock of the damage and the loss of life. An estimated 620,000 deaths meant almost as many families coming to terms with fathers, sons, husbands, and friends who never came home and never would. And if you want to go down a rabbit hole, look at the rise of occult groups and spiritualist movements that happened about the same time as a religious emotional reaction to that loss. A fascinating story, again, just not the one we're telling today. Entertainment. But in this landscape, entertainment was needed, and it had to be cheap. Foot racing, tug of war, bicycle races, rowing, and even walking matches filled that void and offered the chance to place bets and dream of big winnings. Foot racing, which is an odd long-distance race, but with the enforcement of one important rule, one foot must be on the ground at all time, so you couldn't take giant leaping steps or sprints. Much like in wrestling, they would have public arguments about the money split, forfeits, side bets, referees, and so on, most likely to drum up controversy and attention, much like in wrestling. Charles Davies would make, lose, and make money again, representing and promoting many of these athletes in the race-walking business. And this may sound insane today, but it was a huge business. Large venues were packed, live music entertaining the crowds, cops on hand to keep the peace, race walkers had teams of trainers and coaches, doctors were on hand. It was a big deal. It got so big that there were international competitions. But before we look at that, let's head back to peek in on the hero of the family, Henry Davies, in 1872, when Alan Pinkerton replaced Henry as head of the New York office with his own son, Robert Pinkerton. Harry ended up in Chicago, doing restaurant work to make ends meet, eventually returning to New York City to form a new detective agency, and stole the Spanish government away from the Pinkertons as a client. In England, Sir John Dugdale Astley, a sportsman and member of Parliament, announced a race-walking event in the Agricultural Hall in Islington for a championship belt and 750 pounds, which was an enormous amount of money in 1878. Similar events would start offering championship belts and claimants of being the world champion wrestler, I, I mean foot racer. Did you ever think that a marathon could be pro wrestling? In March 1879, the Astley belt was defended in Gilmore Garden, which would be renamed Madison Square Garden two months later. At this event, all the celebrities were out, including railroad robber baron William K. Vanderbilt, who gave Charles his nickname. During the pedestrian event, as they were called, Vanderbilt saw Davies, who was dressed in a black frock coat, and asked who the minister was talking to competitor Dan O'Leary. In an interview in 1911, Davies expanded the story by claiming he was walking along and giving a pep talk to O'Leary, who was on the verge of giving up. Vanderbilt asked about the preacher walking with O'Leary, and someone said, It must be the spiritual advisor. Dressed up origin story or not, from that time forward, the nickname stuck, and he was Parson Davies. 
Also on hand that night was a young man breaking his way into show business with a runner position at the show, William A. Brady, who would go on to manage and promote the terrible Turk, Yusuf Ismail. On the other branch of his family tree, tragedy struck not once but twice. In 1879, his brother Henry's wife, Catherine, fell to her death from the balcony of their apartment, and Henry never recovered, turning to alcohol and alcoholism, and died on August 8, 1880. He was buried next to his wife on the one-year anniversary of her death. In 1881, John L. Sullivan, future heavyweight boxing champion of the world, was tearing through the competitors at Henry Hill's saloon in the Bowery. The sporting press of the area took notice of Sullivan after beating the Bulls' head terror, John Flood. Lit only by moonlight on a barge to avoid police interference, Flood was an enforcer at Henry Hill's and was a well-known Bowery gang leader, so imagine the shock when Sullivan beat the brakes off of him for eight straight rounds. Davies contacted Sullivan's manager, Billy Madden, to lure the pugilist to Chicago to face a couple of boxers he was looking to promote. According to the August 7, 1881 Chicago Tribune, an exhibition would be held on August 13th with $50 to any man who could last four rounds with Sullivan. Parson Davies had been subcontracted as the local promoter of the night. On September 3rd, he promoted a mixed card, meant in two ways, with black boxer Abe Williams fighting on the card with a win over Charles Sanders, it was integrated in a very openly racist time. It was also mixed because it had wrestling on the show. See, I bet you were worried that we weren't going to get to the wrestling in the story. On the same card, Scottish wrestler Duncan C. Ross won a two out of three mixed match with Greco-Roman followed by Catches Catch Can. In the main event, the Sullivan-Burns fight ended with Sullivan flooring his opponent in 20 seconds, then knocking him into the crowd when the poor bastard got back to his feet. Remember that boxing and wrestling matches did not often happen in rings at this time. It was often on a platform or a theater stage. Not exactly safe, but that's the way it goes. And around this time, and for many reasons, states began making prize fighting illegal, which, as you can imagine, made life very difficult for those in the fight game. While putting together the Patty Ryan versus John Sullivan match, which took place on February 7th, 1882, southern states were becoming increasingly hostile towards boxing. According to the February 8th Chicago Tribune, the plan was to host it in Mississippi within 100 miles of New Orleans. However, as things were getting close to the chosen date, the Mississippi State Legislature introduced a bill prohibiting prize fighting with massive fines and jail time for anyone involved. The whole operation was moved to Louisiana in a panic, but back in New Orleans, a group of churches complained to the governor to get the fight canceled. Definitely a won't-someone-think-of-the-children kind of move. The governor, in turn, told Davies to move or cancel the fight, and when asked to indicate the law prohibiting prize fighting in Louisiana, Governor McHenry said that, quote, he was law enough for the occasion, and he would declare martial law and call out the state troops to enforce them. The promoting team, of course, backed down. Ultimately, it was moved back to the Barnes Hotel in Mississippi City as the anti-prize fighting bill was abandoned at the protest of the people who made a lot of money on the thousands of visitors who came to watch fights. The match happened under London prize rules, which allows a certain amount of wrestling with the punching. And Sullivan crushed Ryan in just under 12 minutes and won the world title. If you thought some fighters are a risk when you spend good money on a pay-per-view just for them to starch their opponent in a matter of minutes, imagine traveling to New Orleans and then onto Mississippi City on a train for it only to last 12 minutes. Charles tried to make boxing happen under the radar in Chicago, but the mayor and police chief stepped up with the raids against saloons where gambling on fights took place and stripped them of their liquor licenses. It was as financially cruel a war to wage as imaginable. 
Davies realized he needed to move on from Chicago and created a vaudeville-style variety show with boxing around the West and High Plains, from Omaha to Leadville to Denver and on to Dodge City, and in Dodge City, things went wrong. Boxer Jimmy Elliott went on a drunken rampage for a week, claiming he was heading back to Chicago to kill gambler and occasional boxing promoter Jerry Dunn. The enmity apparently was over Dunn promoting Sullivan and matched him against Jimmy Elliott. The match was canceled when Elliott claimed his hand was hurt, and Dunn publicly called him a coward. During this bender, Elliott remembered this slight and headed back to Chicago, with Davy soon on his heels. Charles got word to Dunn to be careful and to avoid Elliott. Elliott confronted Dunn at a restaurant on March 1st, 1883, and Dunn pulled out a Colt revolver given to him by a friend and shot the similarly armed Jimmy Elliott in the arm. The two men got into a close-quarter fight, and Dunn was clubbed with Elliott's gun before managing to catch his bearings and shot and killed Jimmy Elliott. According to the Jansville Daily Gazette, Dunn had cuts on his scalp from the clubbing. Jimmy was asked if he was hurt and replied, quote, Yes, I think I'm killed. Someone asked if he was Catholic, and he answered yes and begged them to find a priest. Dunn was arrested and apparently didn't know that he had killed Jimmy Elliott, but claimed that, quote, Had I done any other way than I did, it would have been I instead of Elliott that would be lying in the morgue. Boxing and wrestling promoter Henry Hill contacted friends in Chicago to help protect Dunn and get him out of the legal threats, which were quickly dispersed as it was seen as self-defense. Needless to say, the tour was ruined, Jimmy Elliott was dead, and Parson Davies no longer had a contender to match with Sullivan. By 1884, Davies had briefly managed Patty Ryan, John L. Sullivan, Jem Mays, Jack Kilrain, and many other top stars. And in 1885, Davies represented wrestler John Rabshaw for his January 6th match against James Faulkner, which was won by Rabshaw and was so good that on the following New Year's Day, the Chicago Tribune called it one of the top sporting events in the city during 1885. The January 2nd Chicago Tribune claimed that 600 men and boys witnessed the return wrestling match and that, as an exhibition of scientific wrestling, the match was a failure, a fact which the not-too-cultured audience made known by hisses, catcalls, and screeches. A heck of a review, if ever there was one. This time around, Faulkner walked away with the win, and Davies claimed he'd seek a match with Edwin Beebe for Faulkner. In the May 25th Chicago Tribune, Parson Davies was putting together an Andre Cristal versus James Faulkner match in a, quote, private room with only 100 tickets available, two out of three falls, Greco-Roman and catch-as-catch-can rules with a $250 purse. The article also claimed that Faulkner had signed articles to meet Evan Strangler-Lewis in Wisconsin the following Saturday, 100 aside, catch-as-catch-can, two out of three falls, and this was the first time I found Parson Davies and Evan Lewis's names mentioned in the same article. I'm by no way implying that this Wisconsin trip is where Lewis and Davies met, but it's important to remember how intertwined their careers would soon be. And something to keep in mind while I'm skipping around to cover the wrestling part of his career is that wrestling was only a small part of his business. For decades, he was primarily a boxing promoter and was hip-deep in the drama and politicking of the mostly illegal sport in America. But there was still plenty of wrestling to promote, like... On December 19, 1885, when Sorokichi Matsuda arrived in Chicago, according to the Chicago Herald the next day, to perform feats of strength at the Olympic Theater for two weeks. The promoters behind Matsuda's visit, Cole and Middleston, contacted Davies, hoping Charles would be interested in arranging and promoting a wrestling match between Sorokichi Matsuda and Evan the Strangler Lewis. Davies had recently taken over as Lewis's manager due to the Strangler's Wisconsin backers approaching him about the hot up-and-comer's wrestling future. 
See, back in these days, that was pretty much how you made it. You became successful in these theater or carnival challenge matches. Rich gamblers won enough money on you that they would invest in you, essentially, in order to make more money betting on you. So you had people who made a bunch of money betting on Evan Lewis. Those rich people put him in contact with a big promoter like Parson Davies, hoping to get him bigger and better matches, mostly for their own gambling futures. Davies quickly got both sides to agree to the articles that called for a 3 out of 5 catch-as-catch-can rules match, 250 aside, with the winner getting 75% of the gate, so quite a lot of money. Through 1884 to 1886, Charles Parson Davies had become the biggest promoter of sports, especially boxing and wrestling in the Chicago area. He was by all accounts a hardworking, honest man who made everyone money. And that's really all you need to do to become a legendary promoter. Get everyone paid, don't rip anyone off, and stay true to your word. Which is why so many are not capable of... And that's not to say he was honest to the public at large, because we know how crooked wrestling and boxing could be at that time. But the important thing is he seemed to be honest with the people on the inside. It's like the Bob Dylan song, to live outside the law, you must be honest. So yeah, you can, it's mafia-esque in a way. You can be screwing everybody on the outside so long as you're honest with everybody on the inside. But we also have to keep in mind the difficulties of many venues at this time. During the summertime, indoor venues were brutally hot, and outdoor venues were enormous and expensive, so only the very good promoters could succeed in doing them. And at the time, the weather was so harsh that even indoor venues were freezing during the winter. In 1883, the Indonesian island volcano of Krakatoa erupted and exploded for months throughout the summer until 70% of the island finally collapsed under the waves. While not as severe as the Mount Tambora eruption that resulted in the 1816 year without a summer, the Krakatoa eruption had four times the power of the biggest nuclear weapon ever tested, and this caused a global climate effect of darker skies, lower temperatures, sun-blocking sulfur clouds with acid rain, but insanely colorful sunsets, so there's a plus. If you've seen Edvard Munch's The Scream, you'll see what I'm talking about when you look at the background. The climate and venues made it rough, but the city made it even worse with further crackdowns on fights and wrestling matches, and a few high-profile bloody and violent matches didn't do them any favors. Who can we blame on the wrestling side? Evan the Strangler Lewis, of course. Evan Lewis is no stranger to those who listen to this show regularly. But for the newcomers, Lewis was a Wisconsin wrestler who had at this point had wins over Charles Moth, Joe Acton, and Tom Cannon. He was famous for his hanghold, guillotine choke, however we want to call it, hence the nickname which was given to him by Davies, the Strangler. While we may remember him as a brutal bastard who left bruised and unconscious opponents in his wake, at this point he was just a hot prospect who was about to earn this reputation in 1886. On January 28th, Evan Lewis and Sorokichi Matsuda met at the Central Music Hall in Chicago. Matsuda was a Japanese sumo wrestler, though a very small one at that, who came to the U.S. to learn the American style of catch wrestling and traveled the country as a pro wrestler for the rest of his tragically short life. We put out a two-part biography of him in October 2021 if you want to know more. In the match against Lewis, the Strangler was the betting favorite for the crowd that filled the venue and lined up outside still hoping to get in. According to the Chicago Tribune the following day, at 8 p.m., Charles Davies took to the stage and announced the Articles of Agreement. The match would be 3 out of 5 falls to win the 500 and 75% of the receipts. Illinois boxing champion Frank Glover was announced as the referee. Glover was managed by Davies, so that does make one slightly suspicious. There was a weight difference, as Mitsuda was described as being smaller but with a better physique than Lewis. The first fall ended with, quote, Lewis making a sudden dive for his opponent's waist, encircled the ladder with his arms and raised him high in the air, dashing him to the boards flat upon his back. 
thus winning the first fall in 2 minutes and 25 seconds. After the 10-minute rest, they came out for the second fall. Sorokichi managed to toss Lewis with what sounded like an arm in head or a hip throw. He almost got Lewis's shoulders down before the strangler got back to his feet. Sorokichi dived at Lewis, quote, and the rush carried Lewis over the footlights and sent him crashing onto the reporter's table. Lewis got back to his feet. Matsuda apologized, but Lewis would have none of it. The match resumed, and when Lewis bullied Matsuda to his knees, he backed up and then, quote, As the latter was in the act of rising, Lewis suddenly rushed at him and by sheer strength bore him over the footlights upon the reporter's table, while the great crowd of spectators arose to their feet and cheered lustily. Then it dawned upon them that Lewis's act was intentional. They began to hiss, and the referee promptly awarded the fall to the Jap because of Lewis's foul. Time, 9 minutes and 5 seconds. I always love the description of things as lustily, and I understand it had a different meaning back then, but I do love me an accidentally horny headline. And this also makes me wonder how above boards, how honest this match was, nay, may it be a hippodrome, on the grounds that, you know, the, the constant knocking of each other onto the reporter's table, maybe I'm just jaded by so much of the showbiz ballyhoo that, you know, we saw with the same move during the Goldust Trio era. Um, it could be it just happened naturally because there were no ropes. This all happened on a platform. Who can say? Just, just airing my thoughts on the subject. In the third, Lewis wasted no time going for his signature hold. He caught Matsuda in the stranglehold, or as we'd call it today, the guillotine choke. It was in deep, or as the paper put it, quote, The Wisconsin man demonstrated his right to be titled the strangler by drawing the back of his opponent's head under him with a force that threatened to cut Matsuda's head from his body. Matsuda fought off the choke as best he could, which is to say, he allowed himself to be choked until he was purple and waving his hand frantically to signal his surrender at 3 minutes 40 seconds. Gasping for breath, he made his way to the dressing room. The crowd was not happy. Quote, the spectators were not slow to express their disapproval of Lewis's strangling method and called for the rules. Glover read the rules, which stated that pressing against an opponent's throat was admissible. Still, the crowd was not satisfied, one man among them calling out his opinion that strangling is not wrestling. Lewis came out and tried to explain the legitimacy of the hold, but the crowd would have none of it. He offered to drop the hold for the following match, but in the end, it didn't matter. It was announced that Matsuda wasn't able to continue the match due to the damage he received from the choke. Parson Davies announced that Lewis's friends were willing to back him against the Jap for either $500 or $1,000 at any time, and while it's odd to offer two completely different numbers, whatever. The Baraboo Wisconsin Republic later reported that Matsuda, quote, further stated that with the hold barred, he would be willing to wrestle with Lewis, and he thought he could beat him. Odd to challenge a man who just worked you over to a rematch so long as he limited his strongest weapon, and odder still, Lewis agreed. And one thing I really enjoyed while putting this episode together is these are matches I am now covering for the third time in the run of the show, and every time I find more details, more information, that just makes it weirder and more interesting at every turn. So hopefully in, you know, five years when I'm covering it for the 50th time, we'll still be finding different angles to approach it from. The meeting to agree upon the rules for the rematch took place in Davies' office and was reported upon by the January 30th Inter-Ocean. The article quoted Matsuda with a very racist accent, even in the written form, and I'm not going to be reading it as such, but the exchange went along the lines of Matsuda, after signing the contract, saying, You choke me, I shoot you. To which Lewis replied, Matt, I'll screw your leg off next time. Foreshadowing? Perhaps. The rematch was set for Monday, February 15th at the Central Music Hall, with 2,000 fans showing up to see how it went. The February 16th Inter-Oceaner claimed, quote, It was a great crowd, and admission to the hall was secured with great difficulty. The parson stood at the upper gate, and with the assistance of several burly policemen, he managed to stay the surging crowd that pressed against the gates in their eagerness to secure admission to what, of course, they supposed was a shade better than a dogfight. 
The opening entertainment involved a strongman demonstration and, quote, the Nestor brothers followed in a very neat song and dance act. At about 9 o'clock, manager Davies informed Billy Lakeman that Harry Palmer had consented to act as referee. This looked like a mismatch immediately, with a paper stating that Matsuda was, quote, looking like a pygmy beside the Mastodon Hercules. The match was over faster and more brutally than anyone had anticipated. Lewis almost immediately took Matsuda down, who managed to bridge and turn face down, avoiding the pin. Lewis grabbed a foot in what was described as a toehold and started cranking like a motherfucker. In an obvious amount of agony, Matsuda turned his shoulders to the canvas for the pin. Matsuda's leg was badly hurt and he could not continue. Lewis was awarded the win and the crowd booed the decision. While the story of Lewis breaking Matsuda's leg became wrestling lore immediately, the doctors claimed that it was only badly strained. The New York Times reported the leg as broken, but also said the crowd was only 800, so I have a feeling that they were just playing a game of telephone with the story and went with it. Either way, the broken leg is now a myth, a legend, an integral part of wrestling lore. Also after the match, Matsuda's wife reportedly wanted to shoot the Strangler in revenge. So is this a work or is this a shoot? Is it a situation where they were foreshadowing the finish of the match, some showbiz ballyhoo to set up whatever, to make Evan a bigger villain, however you want to put it? It's possible. Could it also be that Evan Lewis knew his leg lock game was very dangerous and decided to make an example out of him? Entirely possible as well. I know many submission wrestlers and jiu-jitsu men who will be like, Babe Ruth calling the home run and will get the hold that they wanted very specifically every single time. Or maybe the first match might have been a shoot, but this was an opportunity to create high drama, sell a shitload of tickets, and clean up on the gambling. Who can say the facts are lost to history unless they find Parson Davies or Evan Lewis's long-lost diary hidden under a floorboard? The truth will never be known. The press was not kind to Lewis after this match. The Campaign Daily Gazette, Barbarism in Wrestling, The Herald and Review on February 17th, An Inhuman Brute, The February 18th Mineral Point Wisconsin Tribune described it as a brutal and disgraceful exhibition and does not come within the meaning of the term sports in any sense. The Omaha Daily Bee on February 16th with A Brutal Wrestler, Evan Lewis Displays His Inhumanity. The Bee reported that Edwin Beebe, who was Mitsuda's trainer, carried him backstage as the crowd shouted at Lewis with, Hang the scoundrel! Pitch him in the lake! Kill the big coward! With chants of shame and foul. So clearly things had to change. On February 22nd, the St. Paul Daily Globe reported about Parson Davies engaged in preparing a set of rules to make wrestling respectable. There was a lot of arguing after the second Lewis-Mitsuda match that, quote, intentionally disabled a man when not even making a pretense of rolling him over on his back is not wrestling. While describing Lewis, quote, with him it is anything to win, and though he manifests his enormous strength in a heartless manner, it is a question if such a man will not do much for wrestling by rescuing it from the disfavor it has been shown to be in for many years, simply because every wrestler of note had been caught in barefaced hippodroming time and time again. So once again, we have wrestling having been discredited as a fake, as a phony, as predetermined, as a hippodrome, and... After people like Muldoon were exposed by Clarence Whistler and various other obvious hippodromes being reported upon in the press, if you remember our Theobode Bauer series, you know, him and Henry Miller put on a series of matches so egregiously faked that new major newspapers were putting out big articles telling people, do not bet on wrestling, you idiots. So his brutality, in a way, was re-legitimizing wrestling, which is a big reason he became a star, even if a hated one. 
but Davies wanted to change the rules. They'd been a little too vague up until this point. The no biting, no gouging, or unfair acts was now seen as too broad as it was left up to the referee's judgment to decide and enforce their views of unfair acts, whatever they might be. Davies also went to work on formulating a new set of rules for boxing, as claimed by the February 18th Buffalo Evening News, to reform fistic sports. From what I can gather, it was an attempt to make boxing rules more universal instead of whatever was agreed upon by the fighters and their managers. Remember that boxing was being increasingly outlawed in the U.S., and he thought that fixing the Queensbury rules as the standard across the country, as well as weight classes, might get the state off their back and leave the sport the hell alone. Because, yeah, at any, at any given time, there could be massive weight differences. It was almost always bare-knuckle. But would it be London Prize, or would it be Queensberry, or would it be some rough-and-tumble combination? Would it be... You know, the, the rules were so nebulous, so up in the air, except for what the boxers themselves agreed upon. So, yeah, there was a need to standardize it, to present it more as a sport than a spectacle, it didn't really catch on for a while, but Parson was doing his best to make it happen at the time. March 7th, Davies promoted Evan Lewis against the Pinewood Terror, Charles Moth. I would have gone with the Terror of All Sweaters, Charles Moth, but that's why I'm not in charge of many things. There was an argument about the style of wrestling before it was decided to be three out of five in mixed rules and would take place at the Grand Opera House in Milwaukee. According to the Chicago Tribune on the 8th, there would be two falls in Greco-Roman, two with catch-as-catch-can rules, and the fifth was cause for an argument with Moth claiming it was to be tossed for, I assume the winner of the first round calls the, uh, the toss, and Lewis claiming it was to be side-hold or Cornish rules. In the end, Lewis backed off his claim and let Moth have his way. The first fall was under catch rules, with Lewis catching Moth in his favorite necklock, and won in 2 minutes 10 seconds. The second was under Greco-Roman rules, and should have given Moth the advantage for this one, but Lewis still won it at the 640 mark after a cautious start. The third was back to catch-as-catch-can, with the result being the same. The round, quote, was taken by Lewis in much the same manner as the first in 2 minutes. He is now the winner, another big one in the bag, and Parson Davies announced his desire to match Lewis against Edwin Beebe. According to the Inter-Ocean on the 8th, quote, Many expected to see a hippodrome. The general opinion, however, prevailed that Parson Davies of Chicago, who accompanied Lewis and who backed him, would not submit to such a thing. Article concluded with, quote, At times he seemed, however, to lean towards trickery, but no foul was allowed. Lewis was wildly cheered, Moth having but few friends. Aw, it's kind of sad. So again, Davies is making wrestling seem real, making it seem respectable. And yes, sometimes it was real, sometimes it was respectable. Uh, there's always the big argument about the mix of works versus shoots back in these days. And I would say it's probably a 60-40 mix. You know, anytime big money was on the line, you never leave that up to chance. Um, anytime that somebody's making their way up the ladder, those are probably shoots because you don't know a star until a star is created, but then you got to protect the star to make the big money. So that's kind of my view on things. Again, opinion, just my, uh, my judgment on the subject. Davies also promoted a boxing match between Frank Lover and Dick Burke, which took place in Chicago at Battery D on Monday, March 8th, 1886, and according to the Portage Daily Register, quote, attracted more people than any entertainment given by Parson Davies for months. Glover, for reasons beyond me, agreed to have Evan Strangler Lewis be the referee, both Lewis and Burke were represented by Davies, and Glover had admonished Lewis during the first Lewis-Matsuda match. Again, a, a weird bit of judgment there. The fight was very close, and many assumed Glover won at best, or a draw at worst, so it was surprising, yet not surprising at all, when Lewis awarded the decision to Burke. I assume Glover filed that under oopsie-daisies, and took it as a learning moment. On March 14th, Evan Lewis took on Edwin Beebe at the Pope's Theater in St. Louis, three out of five falls, catches catch can for 250 aside. 
The St. Louis Post-Dispatch quoted Beebe as saying, If he attempts anything of that kind, referencing Lewis's toehold on Matsuda, he may get hurt himself. The match was set for 3 o'clock. It's always nice to have a matinee. In the March 16th Chicago Tribune, it is reported that BB won the first fall in 13 minutes, Lewis won the second and third, BB the fourth, and Lewis the fifth. Again, when the drama is that high, when you go all the way to a fifth fall, I kind of have a feeling it might not be on the up and up, it might actually be, uh, you know, what you call it, uh, a hippodrome. But quite often, basketball and hockey go to Game 7s in playoff series, so who the heck knows. Around this time, the labor movement in America had picked up steam, and the demand for a standardized eight-hour workday was the cause of all labor unions rallied around and strikes being threatened if such a demand wasn't met by May 1st. With that date coming and going, 40,000 men went on strike in Chicago alone. On May 3rd, there was violence at the McCormick's plant when striking workers confronted strike breakers and were attacked by both police and Pinkertons. Report of injuries and deaths vary, but pamphlets with the words, Working men arm yourself and appear in full force, flooded the city immediately. On the night of May 4th, a strike rally was planned to support union workers who had faced violence at the hands of Pinkertons. 200 cops showed up and tensions were high. The cops attempted to disperse the crowd, but somebody threw a bomb at the cops, who then started firing into the crowd. All hell broke loose under cover of night, bad weather, smoke, and terror. When it was all over, seven policemen and four workers were killed, another 60 or so police are wounded. The number of workers is estimated in the 50 to 70 range for injuries, unknown because most limped away and didn't report their injuries for fear of arrest. Many of the injured and dead cops were most likely shot by their fellow officers. The fallout of the Haymarket riot was predictable and depressing. Anti-union, anti-communist, and anti-worker rights clampdowns were immediate. The dead cops were lionized as the greatest heroes who died fighting to defend the city. The community sided with the police who cracked down on labor groups and immigration labor, raiding homes and offices for months after the riot not bothering with warrants or probable cause. Employers were able to sway opinion back in their favor, dismissing the labor group's demands for an eight-hour workday and forcing employees back into long hours, six days a week, with the image of dead hero cops and evil communist agitators brought up to scare the public. There were arrests and trials, and again, a fascinating and crazy story, but it's not the fascinating and crazy story we're telling today. But this did have an impact on boxing and on wrestling because these are the sports of the working men. These are sports where the people coming up the ranks come from a working class. So when you have political violence and political pressure on the working class, it is, of course, going to bleed over into the sports that they love and the sports they participate in. For example... On May 10th, at the Davies-promoted Burke-Mitchell fight, a mistake by security would further ratchet up tension between the fight game, those who made their livelihoods with it, and the city of Chicago and its police. Parson Davies had been paying Lieutenant John D. Shea of the Chicago Police Department as an unofficial inspector to ensure the rules and standards required by the city were enforced. You gotta grease the wheel, people. It's just how it goes. But Shea had been involved in anti-labor activity and raided a newspaper to dig up evidence against an anarchist movement. Davies had hired extra security in light of the recent social unrest, and the security at the gate asked for Shea's ticket, who showed him a badge instead, and security clubbed him in the head. The May 11th Chicago Tribune recreated the moment for the reading public. A little set, too, for the price of the entrance fee, not on the program, occurred at the entrance to the building. The contestants were heavyweights, Lieutenant John D. Shea of the Central Station and Thomas Daly, a Pinkerton watchman. The former was declared the winner at the end of the first round. The police officer was on his way into the hall when the Pinkerton man, who was on the door, stopped him and demanded his ticket. I am Lieutenant Shea, said the officer. Who's Lieutenant Shea, inquired the other. I am chief of detectives. How do I know whether you are or not? Here's my star, displaying it. Well, it don't make any difference. You've got to have a ticket. 
returned the Pinkerton man. And as the policeman evinced a disposition to pass in any way, the watchman drew his club and struck him on the head. Shay let out with his right, and the next thing the Pinkerton man knew, he was locked up in a cell at the Harris Street Station. As you can imagine, this didn't do any good for Parsons' relationship with the police. The match was declared a draw, despite Mitchell having bloodied the hell out of Burke's face. Papers like the Chicago Tribune suggested Parson Davies might not have been promoting a match on the up-and-up, or at least insisting on a crooked referee. Furthering his woes, on May 22nd, the police superintendent began refusing boxing promoters' permits and started cracking down on the sport. He announced that boxing and sparring exhibitions would be totally banned and stopped a match at a Chicago theater mid-round. Wrestling wasn't officially part of the ban, but was treated as such until it was too late for a policy clarification to do much good. Davies arranged a wrestling match between Evan Lewis and William Muldoon in Minneapolis on May 27th. William Muldoon, the solid man, was the Greco-Roman champion and held much of the wrestling world in the iron grip of his business standards, whether it was shooting or working. The terms of the match were Muldoon needing to throw Lewis twice in one hour, and he managed it once at the 47-minute mark, and then gave up because he knew he couldn't pull it off again in the remaining time. Some papers, like the Urbana Daily Citizen, questioned the validity of the fall since Lewis fell on top of Muldoon and they rolled over and it was called a rolling fall. Perhaps it was fond memories of this that led Muldoon to reinstate rolling and flying falls when he was the New York Athletic Commissioner. Listen to our series about wrestling in the 1920s to learn more about that. According to the Harrisburg Daily Independent the following day, quote, Everyone is disgusted with the result, and Muldoon lost many friends. Again, shooter work. This is one I kind of question because I can understand the idea behind I'm going to win one and then quit in disgust to kind of make it inconclusive to set up a proper match. Uh, you'd see that again with Muldoon in other matches. Maybe he just misunderstood the public reaction to that. Maybe he didn't uh, fully take the temperature of the room, if you will. Because when this happened, people would call him a coward. People would get mad at him. People would call him every name in the book. And it's a lengthy book. And it didn't really do him or the business any good. Um, but it could be a shoot because, you know, maybe that's just the sort of person he was when he got frustrated, not a time-traveling telepath, though I wish I was. So again, nobody knows for sure. Soon after, Muldoon told Davies that he wanted a proper match with Lewis. Lewis and Davies agreed to a 3 out of 5 Greco-Roman match, 75-25 split on the gate, definitely favoring Muldoon with those rules. While working out the details to hold the match in Chicago, which seems insane at that time with the political climate, Muldoon sent a letter to the Post-Dispatch to complain that the rematch was not scheduled, blamed Lewis, and challenged him to a match that was already being worked out under the stipulations that were already agreed upon. In Chicago's Greatest Sportsman, Mark Dunn pointed out that fighting had become a very regional and city-specific sport. Promoters had to know what wheels to grease to get permits, how to make sure the right referee is in the ring, and how to make sure the cops don't show up to break up the fight. Conversely, they knew how to ensure upstart competition faced just those problems. But with a crackdown, fighters were moving to new cities where they had no reputation or drawing power, and thus no job security. Promoters branched off into new cities where they didn't have the connections to avoid excessive shakedowns and police interference. It was chaos. On June 12, 1886, Dick Burke and Peter Nolan fought under Parson Davies' banner. The fight ended in spectacular fashion. After a very close fight, the referee and famed wrestler Tom Cannon took a moment to consider the outcome. Meanwhile, the audience and friends entered the ring, picked up Nolan onto their shoulders, and paraded him around as the winner. Cannon declared it a draw, embarrassing everyone over their behavior, and a rematch was later scheduled. William Muldoon had been the master of ceremonies of this fight, and then returned to Chicago to meet with Davies about the Lewis match. Quite the shift in the power dynamic since their days as policeman and young waiter. 
Muldoon and Davies verbally sparred in front of the press and most likely had a great deal of fun while doing so, Muldoon claiming that he wanted to find out if Lewis could actually wrestle, and Davies replying that Lewis will strangle him. Davies clearly knew who to bribe because he managed to get the Lewis versus Muldoon match licensed in Chicago, according to the Chicago Tribune on June 20th. The Articles of Agreement were signed the night before. The match was to take place at Battery D in Chicago. Three out of five falls, the winner and loser splitting the gate 75-25, and it drew 1,500 people and is remembered for some real weird stuff that I'm sure made the crowd super happy. Duncan C. Ross was the referee. Lewis weighed in at 175 to Muldoon's 195 pounds. And according to the Chicago Tribune, Lewis caught Muldoon in the stranglehold and forced Muldoon to his knees and turned him over for the pin in just two minutes and 30 seconds. Heck of a start for Lewis. In the second fall, it went 25 minutes before Muldoon asked for a timeout to wipe down since they were both soaked with sweat, which is a weird thing to ask, but it was granted by the referee. Muldoon then managed to catch a body lock and slammed Lewis to win the second fall at 30 minutes, 45 seconds, and both men retired to their dressing rooms. But soon a message was sent from Muldoon's camp that the champ was feeling ill and couldn't continue. Lewis was given the match, but not the title, and Parson Davies accepted the public challenge from Tom Cannon for a match against Lewis. From the Chicago Tribune article, Muldoon said privately to a Tribune reporter that the match was a trial for the gate money and not for the championship. He had refused to go on because the house was small, the list of complimentary tickets large, and he was not wrestling for fun. Lewis said that he understood the match to be for the championship and that he should so hold. Again, William Muldoon not making many friends, not making many fans, not getting the sort of press a star would hopefully want to do. So this did nothing, absolutely nothing to raise his stock. It did nothing to make people excited to buy a ticket to see his match. He is complaining about the quality of the promoter, the building, and the fandom. And if you're trying to draw heat to make people want to show up and see you lose, I don't feel that this is the way to do it. And it in, in turn, elevated Evan Lewis as the more competent and honest competitor because he showed up. He won. He lost. He was going to come out for the third. Meanwhile, Muldoon's sitting in the back complaining about every single thing and refusing to come out while at the time representing the Greco-Roman heavyweight championship. So if it was a work, it was a goddamn weird thing to do. Um, if it's a sh I feel like it probably was a shoot or a work that had a different outcome, and Muldoon was kind of starting to hit the self-destruct button on his own career. He'd been champion for too long. He'd held the belt since 1880. His control of the business was starting to slip out of his hands on a business side of things. New stars like Lewis was coming up. It might just be him imploding emotionally and psychologically. Muldoon was a very weird guy, as we see both in this stage of his career and how he handled business as the athletic commissioner for boxing and wrestling in New York decades later. The Tom Cannon match was scheduled for July 15th in Cincinnati at the Grand Opera House, two out of three falls, $250 aside, with the winner getting 75% of the gate. According to the Parsons Daily Sun, no relation, haha, on July 17th, the house cheered as the announcement of Dr. Highway as the chosen referee, and all doubts were removed as to the genuineness of the match. I assume for Dr. Highway, when it came to hippodroming, it was his way or the highway. I'll show myself out for that joke. Apparently, there were people outside handing out flyers that read, Hippodrome at the Grand Opera House. Cannon, Lewis, the people have been victimized enough. Faulkner and Beebe were enough. So yeah, people were so mad about match fixing that they were flyering other matches trying to shut down business. The St. Louis Dispatch headline read, The Strangler Downed. Cannon defeats Lewis in a match that was no Hippodrome. According to the same article, the match was wild. They both went off the stage almost immediately, driving the reporters from their chairs, with Cannon landing on top and then arguing that it should count as a fall. Quote, The excitement in the audience was intense. They arose en masse and shrieked and yelled. Soon after that, they rolled to the edge of the mat with Lewis's legs dangling over the gaslight, and he was badly burned. 
the crowd was losing their collective shit already. Quote, Pandemonium seemed to have broken loose in the audience, and every individual spectator constituted himself a special committee of one to play maniac. And that's press I wish I could get on any given day. Lewis got back in, caught Cannon with a stranglehold, which Cannon escaped and caught Lewis with a half Nelson to turn into a pin in the two-minute mark. During the break, Cannon was reportedly spitting up blood from the stranglehold, while Lewis bandaged his badly cooked leg. In the second fall, Lewis again got the stranglehold on Cannon, and again, Cannon escaped and got hold of Lewis for a throw and a fall at the four-minute mark. Davies immediately demanded a rematch for the following evening, which Cannon declined. Cannon had made like the big, I will wrestle anybody under Greco-Roman rules, anybody on earth, throwing out crazy money numbers, and Davies agreed, but he botched it by trying to make it for the next day, trying to capitalize while Lewis was there. Not sure how well Lewis's cooked leg would have held up after, uh, after that set in for a day. Who knows? Does it matter? Didn't happen. So this was Evan the Strangler Lewis's first loss as a star. Parson Davies had built him up to be front page news, to be controversial, to big, be a big deal, and he lost convincingly to Cannon, which makes me assume this was a shoot unless there was a big betting angle involved because it did Lewis's reputation no good. It made him look bad and it was also represented and promoted by Davies overall. So clearly if it was a hippodrome, if it was a betting uh, profit decision, it would have had to come from Davies. But I feel like since Davies had invested in Lewis to such an extreme, it was probably a shoot legitimately won by Cannon. Who can say, again, lost to history. But it did slightly sour Davies' relationship and confidence in Lewis that would rebound, of course, but that's going to be a story for next time because I have been talking about the career, the life, the times of Charles Parson Davies for a quite a bit of time today, and we're only about halfway through this crazy story. It's going to get even wilder. Crazy matches, crazy boxing, crazy wrestling, and we'll talk about it next time. In the meantime, thank you so much for following me on this uh, this journey of ours. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you like what we're doing, by all means, subscribe. Give us a five-star rating. Leave a review if that's possible on the format you listen to podcasts upon. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter while it still exists, and Instagram. Uh, I like to post the old articles that I find. They're sometimes very silly. I love the wording on them. I just like to share the knowledge that I'm digging up in the newspaper archives. So for now, for today, for this week, I'm Nick Gossert. I'll talk to you next time. Okay.